0: Today we don't just end our study through the book of Acts, this ends a year and a half study through the entire biblical narrative. It's hard to imagine not being in this story, it's been powerful, it's been profound. I, I hope you've appreciated getting this grand view, this grand tour of the whole story and uh, what we learn is that the book of Acts is finished, but the real story is not yet finished. It's an unfinished story. So turn with me to Acts chapter 28. Last week we saw Paul's journey through a storm and a shipwreck, very dramatic season, and then they found themselves by God's salvation on the island of Malta where they wintered. And now we come to this final section. We're going to start with verse 11 and just read about, first of all, Paul's arrival in Rome. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Putealo. There, we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the farm of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So the winter is over, and now they can head back out to sea, And first uh, in Sicily. And then the southerly winds allow them quickly to come to Puteolo, the southern end of the Italian peninsula, about 130 miles from Rome. And from there, they make the rest of the trip on foot. And immediately what we see uh, is this interesting statement, there we found some brothers. They run into Christians all the way into Rome in Petulius, and then in two different locations, the Forum of Appius and the three taverns. You can still find those locations there today on the Appian Way where you'd visit Italy. That encourages Paul. Uh, Indeed, he knew that there were Christians there because the book of Romans was written prior to this and helped the believers there understand their faith. And then you have this very anticlimactic statement at the end of verse 14, and so we arrived at Rome. That's it. We've built this huge plot up. God says to him, you're going to survive all this hardship, all the imprisonment, the beatings, the shipwreck, because you need to testify in Rome. And it seems to me there ought to be this huge climactic, at least an exclamation point to it. But Luke just says, and so we, we got there. We, we arrived at Rome. It's, it's rather understated for the significance of the moment. Paul is actually allowed to live by himself in a rented house that undoubtedly the Christians there made possible for him because he was not allowed to work. He was not allowed to leave that home. That soldier was chained to him 24 hours a day, and there probably were four or more soldiers who took turns. By the way, later on, Paul speaks about those soldiers who were now brothers in Christ when he writes to the churches. Some of these people that were... (laughs) chained to Paul, became his captive audience, and they responded and were uh, brought into the faith, became brothers of Paul, even as they were his guardians. So that's Paul's arrival. Now, the, the next scene is very interesting because we're getting towards the end. There's the short description of the trip to Rome, and then there are just a couple of verses towards the end that summarize the whole story, but the rest of this chapter is given with quite some detail to Paul's encounter with the Jewish community in Rome. In fact, the story ends rather uh, open-ended. It's like there's a cliffhanger. You feel like Luke needed a sequel. Paul is still in prison when the story's done. But there's one subplot that Luke is very careful to tie up, which is interesting. Remember, Luke's a phenomenal writer, and so we're supposed to catch something here uh, based on what at first appears to be a very familiar encounter with the Jewish people. As you remember, his uh, strategy from very early on was to begin by sharing about Jesus, the Messiah, to the Jewish people in each city. There were always those who were we convinced, but there were others who not only rejected it, but violently rejected it. Because that's really where he had to stand as a Jew. Either Jesus is the Messiah, or those who claim he's the Messiah are heretics. So it's either belief or battle. Luke underscores this difficulty of the Jewish people in this final encounter. Let's pick it up at verse 17. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. He he didn't waste too much time, did he? (laughs) Three days later, and when they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you, talk with you. It is because, and this is the key line, if you want to underline the theme of this particular section of the final chapter, it's this phrase, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. That was always what Paul was preaching to the Jews. The hope, what was the hope of Israel? A redeemer, a savior, a Messiah who would come and deliver them and reestablish the royal line of David, bring freedom to the captive and establish the permanent year, era of jubilee. This was the hope of Israel. He always taught that Jesus was God's fulfillment of that longing that existed in the heart of every Jewish Man, woman, and child. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with chains. Verse 21. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Verse 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God. I would love to have been there. I'd give up my Bible college degree to sit there and hear Paul talk from morning to evening, talking about Jesus. And it goes on and says he did it by pointing to Jesus through Moses and the prophets, we have just taken that journey. And we've seen on every page, the whole Testament story is propelled by the promise of a Redeemer. From from the very moment of the fall of man, there's a promise that from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, which means he would crush the work of sin and the fall. He would crush it once and for all. And he would restore what God had always intended. And so the whole Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, they all point to Christ. The whole story of the Old Testament is propelled towards Christ and towards the cross. And then once that's accomplished, the cross and Christ propel the rest of the story forward. And that's what we're on. We're on this wave, this movement. One of the things that we learned early on in looking at Acts is that the church is not an organization. It's not an institution. When it becomes that, it gets shackled in some way. The structures and the programs and the governance models, they get in the way of what the church really is. It's a movement of God propelled by the gospel to transform lives, not to have a healthy organization. And we're on this historic spiritual tidal wave that began at the cross. And the resurrection was the earth-shaking event that propelled this wave of the Spirit that you and I are still a part of today. This isn't really a story of our past. This is a story of our present and our future we're not just studying the book of Acts to understand what happened. We're studying the book of Acts to, by faith, see what could yet happen through us. And that's what Paul does. He goes back through the whole story. Let's continue on. Oh, by the way, let's admit Paul was the master of lengthy sermons, right? Even when people fell dead and in their sleep, he'd just wake them up, bring them back to life and go back to preaching. Just be grateful. Just be grateful. All day, from morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. The result. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. This is pretty typical, isn't it? It's uh, Yogi barism. it's deja vu all over again. What is new about this? It almost gets boring that this happens every single time, and yet Luke carefully points out this conflict that occurs in each city that Paul comes. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just say, everywhere that Paul went, This was what he encountered with the Jews. Why give details over and over and over again? Let's connect the dots, because this is where he wraps it all up. Let's continue to read. Verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had said his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through the prophet, Isaiah. Now, first of all, just a little teaching about our belief about the Bible being not only written by men, but also written by God. Here we see Paul affirming that, that the whole Old Testament was written by the Holy Spirit, even as it was written by, in this case, Isaiah. And then he reads what Isaiah said about the children of Israel centuries ago. Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. This is where Luke wraps up the dilemma of the gospel and the Jewish people. See, all along the promise was you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem first. Paul goes on and defends that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. God's hope, of course, is that his people would come to embrace the fulfillment of his entire work with them, which was fulfilled in Jesus. And some believed. But the sad reality of the book of Acts and of history is that the Jewish people failed to see it. As Isaiah says, they themselves chose to turn from it. They hardened themselves to that message. Their own view of what the Messiah would be their own expectations, their own interpretations, their own personal needs. In the time of Christ, they were under the bondage of Rome, and so they saw a true political deliverer who would come and free them from Rome and literally reestablish David's throne. All these preconceptions dominated. And so when they saw Jesus, they said, no, that's not it. That, That can't be it. And so the sad reality Luke's pointing out here is that the Jewish people, all these many decades later, have missed their Messiah. Now, there's a couple of things that are worth spending a couple of minutes on in relation to this, and maybe someday we'll come back and explore this a little more. First of all, in some sense, the Jewish people in Luke's day represent all of those Gentile and Jew alike who come to God with a presupposition of what he ought to be. If there was a God, this is who that God should be. And then when they encounter the real God, they reject him outright because he doesn't match their expectations. Most people who reject the notion of God, unless they religiously are atheistic. Now, I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but I believe atheism is a religion. It takes faith to be an atheist, just like it does to be anything else. Unless they are fervently atheistic, most people reject the God of the Bible because they think their presuppositions about him ought to be the standard. In other words, they create God in their image. If there is a God, then God is whoever God is. We believe that God has revealed himself to us through the story we've been reading, and most personally, and perfectly, and profoundly through the person of Jesus Christ. See? If you can't suspend your presuppositions, those presuppositions become your God. And like the Jewish people, you miss the life and the grace and the blessing that God offers you. So in some sense... The Jewish people just represent all of those who ideologically put themselves in a position where they close themselves off, close their eyes and refuse to listen because they've committed themselves to their own ideology. But there is a truth here that's bigger than that about the Jewish people. You know, nowadays, as Christians, we love the Jewish people. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, as Scripture teaches us. We're grateful because out of Judaism came Jesus, our Savior, But we have to be very careful that we don't enfold the Jewish faith into true faith simply because it's the predecessor of Christianity. Well, they worship the true God, don't they? Well, the honest answer is no. Because the true God became human and dwelt a while among us. And in this day and age, the only worship of the true God is by honoring and professing his son Jesus Christ. The fact is, we need to pray for the salvation of the Jewish nation. I went to Bible college with Moshe Rosen, the founder of Jews for Jesus. He's now with the Lord. I have many friends who are Jewish who have come to Jesus as their savior, and we could tell you stories about how that is happening all over the world today, and in particular in the Holy Land. There are Jewish people that are acknowledging Jesus as their Messiah. But like all people, that's their path to God. And that is so for the Jewish people in our study today. And that's what Luke is trying to summarize here. That at some points, the gospel had to once and for all break free of what birthed it. Christianity was not just a subsect of the Jewish faith. It is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And I think that's what Luke is trying to finish in this story. Verse 28, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Now, let's pick up the rest of the story, which we're calling point three, the end of the book, but not the story. Verse 30, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the end of the story. And if you're following the life of Paul, the transformation of Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of the early Christians, to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, all the intrigue of this and the three missionary journeys and the constant threat and then ultimately the arrests and the series of trials that occurred, his appealing to Rome, God saying to him, you're going to go and you're going to testify before emperors. We don't get to see the end of that. Why doesn't he finish the story about Paul? Well, let me just tell you quickly what we know about paul and then we'll get to really answer why luke doesn't tell this story most people believe and i hold this view that after 2 years he was liberated that there was a a time limit in which if you were going to bring an accusation against someone in a roman court you had that time those 2 years to mount your case and so for 2 years paul sits in his own home, but under guard, waiting for the Jews from Jerusalem to come and to mount their case against him. And as far as we know, that never happened. They really didn't have much of a case. Three times, actually, the Jews tried to make a case against Paul in a Roman court, and all three times they failed. They also knew that that Rome did not look lightly upon people that brought frivolous accusations. In fact, very often, you were the one that was punished. And in some sense, they'd already accomplished their goal. They'd gotten rid of Paul. They were free of him. And so, chances are, after two years, Paul was freed. There is a fourth missionary journey, according to tradition. Some of the epistles that are written, especially to Timothy, are written after that. During Paul's second imprisonment, tradition tells us on his fourth journey, he got as far as Spain. And then about six or seven years later, he's arrested again and then finally martyred for his faith. Now, Luke certainly could have included those details. Why didn't he? He didn't, first of all, because the hero of the story of Acts is not Paul. The hero of the story of Acts is the gospel. It's the gospel. This isn't Paul's biography. Let's be clear, Luke's whole intent was to tell the story of the penetration of the gospel to the world of his day in ever-widening circles from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world until it reached Rome, the world's political and cultural center. And he has told his story Paul's end is inconsequential, because the story, the hero of the story, the hero of the big story is Jesus, but the hero of the story of Acts, the primary character, is not a man, it's the message, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and even Paul himself makes it clear, it's the gospel that I'm proud of, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God to salvation. God's grand scheme of restoring not just human beings into relationship with him, but realigning all of creation once again to its original purposes. The gospel is the power of God. It's worth noting that all this drama of Paul coming to Rome because he has to testify before Caesar of the gospel, all this drama to finally get here, he comes to the very first city in Italy, and what does he find? Christians. Christians were already there. You see, that's the thing. The gospel had already spread to Rome. Paul had a very specific role to play. But the gospel was not penned up or bound by Paul's mission. The gospel had come. The gospel's like the ultimate flu. <laughs> you know, Once you catch it, you just start spreading it. If you really embrace the gospel... You don't hide it. You don't keep it to yourselves. The gospel caught fire in that world. All this drama for Paul to come. Holy Spirit was there. The gospel was there. And consequently, Christians were already there. The hero is the gospel. Second, the story continues through us. I think one of the reasons why Luke intentionally leaves Paul's story unfinished is to remind us that we're the continuation of not only Paul's story, but the whole story of Acts. The story continues through you and me. When Jesus said to his followers in Acts chapter one, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the world, Jesus saw a much bigger world than the Roman world. The uttermost parts, God's desire is that all people. The Bible describes a great host of people in eternity from every tribe, tongue, and nation before the throne of God. You and I are still on that mission. There are people to be reached. And with each new generation that the world produces, there's a whole new world to be reached. The story continues through us. Third, the story will end, but it will end when God says it does. (laughs) Picture this final glimpse of the book of Acts. It's like we're going away from the book, and as we look back, This is what we see, this is the final image. Say that with me. Paul in chains and the gospel unhindered. I think we're meant to leave this story with that picture. I think that's supposed to be forever embedded in our mind. In your English translation, it probably says what mine mine does. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the Greek language, without hindrance is actually a single word, unhindered. And it's the very last word in the whole book. The very last word is unhindered. The gospel has been released from any sense that it's just a a minor little movement in Judaism. We've wrapped that baby up. The gospel is unhindered, and it continues to go out. This wave, not just through the humanity of that day, but through the humanity that would come until the end of days when Jesus finishes the story. The gospel is free. No prison can hold it. No circumstances can silence it. No enemy can squelch it. And simultaneously, as we see this unhindered power and presence of the gospel, we see our hero, Paul, in chains. And I'd like to suggest, and this is just what I see in it today, I'd like to suggest that that's a picture of all of our lives until Jesus comes. In some sense, we all live our lives in chains, we live in a broken world. We're enslaved to a mortal, corruptible body. It wasn't what we were intended for. We were intended for life. But death entered the world through man's disobedience. And so consequently, we live. We're eternal beings, and yet we're trapped, we're bound. We're chained to death, to a broken and fallen world. And so in some sense, Paul represents life. The continuation of the story is both the freedom of the gospel, but the enslavement of those of us whose lives have been transformed, we're eternal beings. But yet, like Paul in a house enslaved to a Roman guard, chained to a Roman guard, we are bound by our corruptibility, by the fallenness of this world. Paul talks about that, not just you and me. We're not the only ones waiting for the ultimate liberation. Creation itself is. Just look with me at Romans chapter 8 as we wrap up today. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start reading at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing You see, we're part of that creation. Even though we're reconciled to God in spirit, we're bound in this world that is just waiting for the ultimate freedom. We're still enslaved to death in some way. Our spirits live, but there's corruptible. There's mortality. We're like Paul. But even though we are in chains, the gospel is unhindered, yet today, if we're willing to let it be. You know how we put the gospel in chains? When we focus on our own freedom, our own freedoms and rights on this side of eternity, rather than being servants, surrendered, bondservants to Jesus Christ. When you make it all about your personal liberties now, the gospel, as far as you're concerned, is what becomes enchained. There's no power in the gospel through you. It's when we acknowledge our indebtedness to Christ, when we acknowledge that we are longing for the ultimate liberty and that the gospel is the only hope, when the gospel has come to the last person that is to be saved, God will say, all right, it's time. And there will be a glorious conclusion when Christ comes. And there is a new heaven and a new earth. He will reverse the curse. He will establish his reign forever. And our stories will be completed as the story reaches its full climax. The serpent will be finally crushed. Christ will be exalted. And finally, every tongue will profess that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And our job is to extend that gospel. And what did he say the gospel was? The kingdom of God, the reign of God, through Jesus, who is Lord, he is God, and he is Christ, he is Savior. Would that we could capture That this alone, only this, is what our lives are to be about. And that through that acknowledgement, the gospel would be unleashed through us to this city. And I believe that's the final and ultimate message. And it's up to you to choose. Do you close your eyes turn down your listening or do you hear do you respond and do you let the gospel explode through you to a world around you there is no neutral let's be that church please let's be that church let's extend the reign of christ would you stand with me in commitment to that Now receive these words of Jesus as a parting blessing. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.